0: Hey guys. Due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking To Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace, so buckle up, buckaroos.
1: Good morning, faithful reader.
0: Welcome, fortunate seeker.
1: This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata.
0: Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where
1: a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as
0: Which of Kat's parents is Deorathe?
1: Deorathe. Does the symbolism of the dream actually mean anything? Deorathe?
0: And could a rebellion in Callow accomplish something?
1: Well, Cat's not going to allow one. Dwarreith. That's terrible. Where have all the good men gone? Graveyards, mostly. Dread Emperor Malevolent
0: III. The Pithy. I had no idea that Bonnie Tyler was a Dread Emperor. Surprised. Good for her.
1: (laughs) Well, this chapter we get the second half of the name dream, the name vision, and we get Pat starting to come into the powers of her name uh, pretty early on. There's a bit of a slog where she runs from some zombies and you know not a whole lot happens of interest but i do find it that find it pretty fun that she reacts quickly and cuts a an explicitly slow moving creature and is in awe of how her name works and it's great to see the power scaling i suppose black moves quickly and stabs her in the previous chapter and it's impressive because he's wearing armor and here she she cuts a a slow moving thing and is in awe of what she can do now. And this is basically nothing compared to what we see from names. It's just it's a fun little taste to on a reread to to see the scale at which Cat operates at the the start of the story.
0: We can really appreciate it because the enhanced reflexes never go away in the story. It's not, oh, we were going to do greater and greater things. Well, yes, she does. But I recall book six, book seven, Catherine, High Priestess of the Night on a flying thing. It might have been one of the zombies. It might have been one of the uh, necromantic constructs having a fight with one of the revenants and something's coming at her. She raises a staff and blocks it. It's a side note. Her focus is on the story and the creature in front of her. And here? She she, she stops a slow zombie. And not only that, she stops it in a name dream. Obviously, this is real on some kind of level. Something about it is relevant and meaningful to real life. But also, Cat is not in a swamp in, so to speak, real life. Cat is not fighting a zombie. And she's impressed that in her dream where she can kill her double, where a swamp can hemorrhage zombies... Beautiful language, E.E., that she can move fast. I love it.
1: These early chapters are definitely I don't think I don't think the story ever gets away from some level of I don't know, grittiness, of, of down-to-earth. Like obviously you're dealing with the Hierophant and you're dealing with the, the Warden and you're dealing with these high powers that are capable of moving cities and armies. And but there's always a grounded nature to things that there are concerns over shafts of wood with a point on the end for characters even in the late game and it's it's nice to see here that that, that's that's where cat comes from that's where cat stays that's where the story stays but (laughs) it is her extrapolation here i cut a zombie that was moving you know she cuts a zombie that was moving slow she extrapolates to quote no wonder heroes were said to take on an entire fortress filled with soldiers without a second thought no wonder villains take on entire groups of heroes. End quote. Hat, you moved a little fast, friend.
0: <laughs> and fails to understand in the process the nuances of those difficulties. Because, yes, heroes, especially heroes, because they cheat, but heroes take entire fortresses filled with soldiers. Yes, but also. As we will read, a named going single-handedly upon a field of battle can be taken down by sheer numbers, by sheer opportunity. Eventually, a mortal rolls a 20. Meanwhile, a villain taking on a whole group of heroes? Yes, she specifically does that later on, but very carefully. Because villains take on entire groups of heroes, but how do stories end? Typically with the villain dying. With their head on a spike.
1: You also... You say that she takes on groups of heroes carefully. Are you, there's a battle dealing with some camps and she, her body sort of just brute forces a fight against many heroes.
0: I blame diabolic forces for that. Sorry. I blame the diabolic force for that one. (laughs) But later on, I recall a flying fortress a place of stories and careful separation of a carefully constructed of a carefully constructed band of 5 and a couple of riddles she very carefully constructed it
1: and to be fair she does have a little help with that one she's not alone there outnumbered but not alone
0: and certainly not outgunned i <laughs> even the mirror knight himself our horrible, idiotic Mirror Knight. I think you mean our unproblematic fave, Mirror Knight. I'd bet on Catherine.
1: <laughs> Shortly after this revelation, this eye-opening event, we have Cat pushing forward, getting swarmed a little bit, trying to make her way through these zombies. And we reach the point where this name dream tiptoes across the line into a normal dream Kat has a dream where somebody's teeth fall out. I feel like that's pretty unoriginal of her soul and also like her soul is trying to tell her something. Although I still haven't learned what it is supposed to mean when your teeth fall out in a dream. I just know people talk about that
0: all the time. As if you grind your teeth. Mm. I do not have that dream and my teeth are beautiful.
1: So this zombie grinds its teeth is what we're hearing.
0: Yes. <laughs> It's one of the great curses of being a typical bog zombie, rather than one animated by the dead king himself. The dead king zombies have immaculate teeth. He provides the greatest dental care for the undead this side of the tomb. Not all acknowledged, I think there's a beautiful symmetry to Catherine's career as a named, which really is beginning with this dream. Everything before this point led her to it. But until now, she wasn't touching a name. She was part of other stories. She wasn't a story in her own right. And this is certainly before she was the story. Here in the inaugural moments of her name, she fights undead. In the final moments of her story, Outside of what I think even she, in-world, would consider more of a more of an epilogue, more of an appendix, she fights the undead. She starts and ends at the same point. But in between those points, here, she must reach a tower. And before she vanquishes Nessie, she raises a tower.
1: Are you suggesting that the entire story is a palindrome? Yes. I guess I can get behind that. It is interesting, though. Um, she's in this dream, like you said, undead into a, a tower. There's hmm, She spends a fair amount of the early part of this chapter, prior to reaching the tower, attributing a, a, a decent amount of volition to her soul in a way that makes it seem like a separate entity to herself. Um, I don't know. She she, her, she treats her soul almost like later in the story she'll treat the idea or the person of fate, this outside force that has a goal and is (laughs) very spiteful and that it has not just a goal and intent, but a personality. Um, And I think this kind of ties in with sort of what we've been talking about What what's going to come out of this name dream entirely. But Kat obviously has a knack for recognizing the, I don't know, metaphysics of her world, even now with almost no training at all. Is her attachment of uh, attachment of personality to this to her soul mingled with whatever the a name is when it's not attached to someone the idea of the name the the meta story that's sort of hovering in the ether until it lashes onto someone is that actually what's happening here does it actually have this volition or is cat just taking everything personally because that's who she is
0: she seems very willing to accept that it comes from herself and doesn't fight that later on her double says everything you see here all that you've been through so far it comes from you we're voicing your doubts nothing more and she says that makes me responsible for the bloody zombies then that's a whole new level of self-loathing haha uh and i think that's the root of Catherine. she is willing to accept that the world works in a certain way that the gods are as they are, that the stories are how they are, that the truths of the world, the villains of the world, the heroes of the world are what they are. Resignedly, she doesn't try to rage against the rules of the world. She finds the points that she can do something about them and stubbornly sets her head against the forces that govern them. She sees here her soul herself is responsible for this and she accepts it immediately. And soon thereafter, strangles that mouthpiece to death. Sure, it's her soul. But Catherine has never been afraid to gain the world and lose her soul. Metaphorically and...
1: And literally, yes. I think I can agree there. Saying that she doesn't rage against the reality she finds herself in. While, you know, you, you you did couch that with the she changes what she can. She does set out to... Fundamentally alter the relationship between the two sides of named in a pretty drastic way. And I don't know that if that's not raging against reality, I don't know what is. Named are more than just, you know, the people in this world, they are the stories that underpin creation. Changing how they relate to each other is changing reality.
0: Changing how they relate to each other is changing. Changing the pieces, changing the board, but it all boils down to the same type of game. A more aspirational Catherine, I argue, would seek to excise stories from the world altogether. She even had the elements in her story later on to do that. She has the book, she has the sword, she has her position and weight, she has a captive god or two, she has Zizi, and she, unlike the dead king and unlike the hierophant, says that reality is of this nature. I will reshape everything I can within that nature. But that we are stories, that we crawl through our ruts, that is the nature of creation. As we read in the first epigraph, the book of all things makes the stories the fundamental aspect of creation. The only choice that really matters is the role. And Catherine doesn't... Abolish that. She seeks to contain and channel. That's what I mean. You are welcome. Just say I observe too much discrete difference.
1: I think both of our points are bordering on the so niche, so specific as to be nearly meaningless once we drill down so much that we're comparing this level of things. I think this conversation is worth bearing in mind when we reach the point where she has the book and the sword and. As she's as she's delving deeper into creation and learning more and and seeing those underpinnings, I think keeping this conversation in mind as we reach each of those points will be valuable. And, uh, you know, we may inform some of our arguments more heading into this reread, since right now we're drawing on admittedly months old, if not years old memories of how certain things happened.
0: I'm very thankful that this is a whirlwind reread. So we'll keep everything in mind.
1: We'll be at the end of this in no time.
0: Moving back to the story at hand, rather than the uh... oh,
1: should we talk about this chapter?
0: Yeah, which one were we on? <laughs> a knife was it? Something like that. But yes, here in chapter five, roll. As she fights through the swamp, she is moving towards the tower. Uh, and I brought up the tower as a piece of the parallel. Here, she approaches the tower as she, as she vanquishes a later undead. She moves away from having raised one. Great, but name dreams. Her name dream here, her evil twin and not-so-evil twin, offer her choices. They indicate directions she could go nominally, as in of or relating to names, ways she could go name-wise. Would you think the symbolism of a tower, even if, yes, it stretches up and there's the great city above, but a person in the shadow of the Empire approaching a tower in the acquisition of her name. There's a very powerful story being offered to her here. And for a lot of the story, it seems very possible, sometimes likely, that Catherine might make a tower run.
1: It does, and I think at risk of getting too in the weeds here, if that's even possible for this podcast, I did note, and you sort of mentioned it here as well, in the name dream, she approaches the tower and starts at the top the the towers you know the tower coming out of the city is for this purpose the purpose of this discussion upside down she's already at the top and is deciding where to go from there her life is within the tower this is this i don't want to i don't want to erroneously give divinatory powers to this name dream or prophetic powers even but it, it it feels like there's a nudge in that direction a when you've reached this point you're making a decision when you've reached this point your path is you've already made the choice towards you know the evil name the evil twin what have you and then the other choices here i don't know how directly that parallels with the later time spent in the tower at the end of the story but it feels like that could have been a path and i don't know i i i The parallels are interesting. The symbolism of the way the tower is oriented and the the good twin being here, quote unquote, they're interesting.
0: It's interesting to think where that might lie in the story. Where the parallels micro strongest as she reaches the top of Empire infrastructure in Callow and claims crowns herself while the Empire remains impotent to act against it directly. I don't know. We'll have to continue, as in all things we discuss, watching as we go further. Yeah,
1: there are definitely a few moments that might tie into this very well. So we'll just need to keep that in mind going forward. I agree.
0: Another thing to watch as we go forward is something that I was reminded of in this chapter as she recognizes she wasn't even the squire yet. She doesn't hold a name and she's already doing so well. So much of Practical Guide is transitional. Catherine does not hold a name for... We should keep account How many chapters does Catherine hold of whole name in the story? Three aspects, nothing... St- Stitched together, nothing robbed from a grave. It could be in the very low double digits.
1: Yeah. She doesn't she doesn't take very good care of her names.
0: Or herself. Or herself. Or there are extenuating circumstances, I admit, but or her people. She puts them through hell in <coughs> some cases literally.
1: You said it, not me. I'm just gonna wash my hands of
0: implying that. No, there are literally scenes in hells. I mean, fair enough. But my personal hell is the fact that, again in this chapter, Catherine says weeping heavens. Can we stop? It hurts me to hear you curse in the name of gods you will defy. Blaspheme against your own kind.
1: <laughs> it It's very much a, this is the culture she grew up in, but it is weird coming from Cat. It doesn't feel right.
0: But what is a very cool part of her character that we get a first look at today? Very small. First read through, I didn't pick this up as anything important. When she views the great city above, the sprawling, upside down, vertigo inducing nightmare from which the tower extends, or to which the tower extends, from her perspective, she says that just looking at the thing was putting back the itch under my feet that I'd associated with my old fear of heights. That's it. No more mention in this chapter. It doesn't affect the course of the story it doesn't and it feels on an initial read-through felt to me like you know a throwaway piece of characterization not a meaningless line but not one which factors so regularly into the character of our little cat
1: on a on a first read-through it's it's a piece of information that makes cat feel more like a person right now it's a great bit of early teasing towards very important things later on. It I also noticed that bit and I smiled when I read that sentence for sure.
0: Do we know what coins are made out of in Callow?
1: What coins are made out of? Yes. I don't know whether we do. I would imagine precious metals.
0: I'm thinking it must be. the when Catherine sees the pair of armored knights with or rather the empty suits of armor. She sees the armor is made out of a gleaming silver and she says that was the stupidest thing i could think of to forge armor with except maybe gold it was soft metal any halfway decent blade would cut through and unless she's deriving this from numismatic knowledge she really has an unusual understanding of precious metals for a poor orphan that is to say ee's detail here informs us about the currency close readings fun kids
1: that is familiar with both gold and silver in chapter 1 shes mentions that she's usually paid in imperial silver but she's also familiar with gold because she compares it to gold so callowin coins might be gold based on that but imperial coins are silver or the commonly used ones are
0: fantastic
1: after criticizing the armor of the fictional, the the imagined automatons that her soul created to challenge her. Cat meets her good twin. There's a bit of discussion. The twin wants her to dispose of her weapon before she can enter the tower. Obviously, Cat hesitates there, but once she agrees to go in, once the terms are established, we get a little taste of... I'm not sure what to call it. It almost feels mischievous when Cat immediately upon promising to get rid of her weapon, just kills a guy with it to get it out of her hand. She doesn't set it down. She doesn't throw it. She just puts it in someone's chest and leaves it there. It's extremely cat. And also... It, it, it's extremely cat in a couple of ways it's violent it's sudden it, it's taking care of something it's proving a point it's a little silly but it's also she reads a situation incredibly well incredibly accurately even were i inclined towards sudden bursts of violence if i were in this position where there were two guards and a twin the matching partner of whom i had recently had to fight i would be hesitant to initiate a fight even if i win the fight immediately initiate a fight in such a way that leaves me defenseless and cat is just knows to go for the i was going to say the throat go for the chest and then back away and understand that the fight won't continue past that
0: go for the chest plate
1: of course it's a it's one of those moments of reading a situation that cat does incredibly well but mostly just played off as look how goofy i am i stabbed a guy a thing a figure
0: In the previous chapter, just want to quote again, I was wrong, Black said, though he didn't sound like he was admitting an error. You could never have become a hero. You lack the mindset for it. Catherine is a born villain. I'm I'm not sorry. Everyone around her is.
1: True. Most of the heroes that we know would have killed all three of the people here, just in case.
0: They wouldn't have liked to, other than Saint.
1: I was going to say, I feel like the Saint wouldn't have minded so much
0: our hero most hated would have had the decency to feel bad about it and also have made it even worse somehow.
1: Yeah, yeah. The inside of the tower is decorated with scenes from Kat's life. They're, they only go so far, of course. She's relatively young. I Most of that just seems like the kind of faux hmm, symbolism that a teenager's soul might come up with as a powerful look at it it's your entire life painted on the walls of this tower but it leads into a conversation with her twin that with the not her twin with the good twin that is actually pretty interesting um it's it's the whole point of this this part of the dream there's a, a discussion cat demands answers the the twin hesitates a bit and you know mentions what you talked about earlier that it's it's coming from cat and there's this response from the uh from the good twin you have this belief that nothing worth having can be had easily i i feel like that is a reasonable conclusion to arrive at for a person an orphan in a conquered nation i don't think there's ever been a moment in cat's life where there has been an easy thing happen it's it's interesting that she's she gets to this herself i suppose you know it's coming from internally internal but she she responds to it as as though it's a revelation, but not one she particularly cares about, and she's just ready to move on. I don't know. I I, I think it's interesting. It, it's definitely true. It definitely keeps her prepared. In various points, she's always you know she kind of keeps an eye out for the trick for the other shoe to drop. There's there are, there are layers to things that Cat is aware of, partially because of this trait. This belief she holds and for her it's this i don't know throwaway thing this very uninteresting thing that she's ready to move on and let's let's get to the point where we fight or what have you
0: Catherine doesn't have patience or frivolity she demands substance in everything look at her inability to conform to any convention of society of noble society and she doesn't suffer fools lightly even when her own soul is a fool To be told that she doesn't believe that anything can be had easily is simultaneously obvious that nothing can be. But also, as the conversation continues, we see that her interlocutor is inconsistent. You believe that nothing worth having can be had easily. Your adventure in the swamp is a reflection of that. And then the doppelganger claims... That there is another law, the one you were taught, the house of light. Do good, uphold right, protect the innocent, fight for a righteous cause. Which not only is not an easy course being suggested, but by Catherine's own estimation, and therefore maybe arguably the doppelganger's own estimation, if they're both Catherine, suicidal. Catherine says, real original stabbed Catherine says, you want me to be a hero? That's, I don't think I even have the words to tell you how Stupid of an idea, that is. Let's forget for a moment that my body is in near proximity to at least two of the calamities, though that should be enough in and of itself. Heroes try to liberate Kalo all the time, idiot twin. It doesn't work. They try, maybe, stir up a town in the south, and then they die. Assassin gets them, or the Legions, or Hells. I'd even heard Black put down a few himself. Some don't even make it into Callow itself before they get caught. Her soul, her idiot twin tells her, things, some difficulty is your own fault because you don't think anything worth having can be had easily. And also the only thing worth having is something you'll die over and accomplish nothing. And that's what Catherine has no patience for. She isn't a scholar. She's never a scholar. She's never erudite. But she will engage in endless sessions of strategy and discussion and planning and plotting and learning if there's an end. But the only end found following the idiot twin is resignation or death.
1: I almost wonder if the inconsistency of the twin and even... No, just the twin is intentional. Her her purpose isn't to change Cat's mind. It's to not serve as a sounding board, but to to nudge Cat to to adjust her course, to encourage her to think about things in a new way or in a slightly shifted way, if not new. Like you you know, like you said, she she the the Doppelganger suggests things have to be hard and that's your issue here. And then as soon as Kat says, that's too hard to do, the twins' response is, that's your answer. It'd be too hard, too hard not to become another tool of the empire instead of doing the right thing. Before that, Kat says, this isn't gonna work. Your your idea of becoming a a hero is foolishness. uh, You know, everything you just quoted. And the twins' response isn't to come at it from the top level, but to quibble over details. She says you already know the people here. You're in the right city. What's the problem? Like giving advice, almost strategic advice on a rebellion. Not on any sort of philosophical point, but well, why don't you just do a rebellion better, basically? The the twin is encouraging Kat to think this thing through, to to bring her own ideas, to to see them coalesce. Kat has already decided villainy is the way to go, but doing this oh, because of how strict some of the lines are for roles and because so much of a role is well so much of a name is stepping into a role i think uncertainty about where you might end up uncertainty about what your goals are uncertainty about your loyalties i think that can only make your name weaker and it may make it may have made her claim weaker and this is a refining process it's Cat's soul forcing her to fully come down on the side of becoming a villain. If there were any doubts, the doubts are expressed and cut down mercilessly.
0: And yet... We get a window into Kat's thinking, and we see, since this is Kat talking to Kat, or Kat's soul talking to Kat, or a bit of nameness within her soul talking to, you know. But since there's an aspect of auto-conversational dynamic, it's not really the initiation, but a window for the viewer, for the reader, to see why Catherine acts as she does in a few chapters when she has William in her clutches. When she could put down a rebellion that doesn't have to happen, and she lets it go. She wants this, clearly. And here's, honestly, an easy way to have something worth having and that she's in position to see it successful. She thinks, maybe. Let's pay attention as we read that, which is the fourth time this chapter we've said that.
1: Well, I mean, that makes sense. This chapter is establishing the foundation of Kat's name, it, which means this chapter both meta from from our perspective as readers and internally within the story is creating the basis of cat's story of cat's life because that is what the story is it makes sense that this is setting up plot threads that it's it's creating foundations that it's foreshadowing all over the place that's what her name dream is it would be absurd if we came out of the name dream with only answers and no questions i think That said, speaking of us as readers and the story within the story, Cat explicitly says, This isn't a story, you twit. We're living this. I have to say, that kind of thing shows up in various stories in, you know, what have you. This isn't a movie where, you know, that kind of thing. It's especially funny in this of all stories for a character to say that.
0: And Cat of all characters, because she (laughs) will know better so soon.
1: So very soon. It's such a funny line that 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 gets dropped in so early in a story about stories being real parts of the in-universe reality. So good.
0: There's no other place that Cat could drop it. She learns better very fast. Not next chapter, but the seeds are laid before she gets to the college.
1: Can't argue with that. Her teacher is Black. She can't avoid understanding what's going on for long. So... There's very little left in the dream after this discussion. Um, it's Cat realizing what's going on, and then Cat murdering the twin. I had a thought that in Kat's realization paragraph, where she summarizes, where she boils down what the twins are, parts of her personality or her potential personality, it's a little unclear, each represents... I kind of this is something Kat struggles with for a long time, wrestles with for a long time, I think, in that she mentions that the evil twin, quote, thought that just killing everyone who deserved killing was going to be enough, end quote, and that the good in thought being good Capital G, good, is enough. That's a, that's what matters. It doesn't matter the consequences of your goodness. It doesn't matter the the actions you take. It's, are you good? These are concepts that show up frequently throughout the story, especially when Kat deals with heroic named. The It's very interesting how much of a direct line you can draw from the two twins to specific characters or mindsets later on. You've got the good twin who has a... a a philosophy that feels like maybe the early white knight is when he first shows up or some other heroes that all that matters is being capital G good. Even almost the mirror, night the kind of naivete where you just, you don't understand what's going on in the world. And you look at each devoid of context and devoid of the bigger picture. And you make your decision and you do the thing that the book of light tells you, or that your internal moral compass tells you, and that's that's the height of heroism. And then you have the other twin, the swamp twin, who's just I mean, I hate to say it again, I hate to bring him up again, but who's just Tariq. Anybody who deserves death, you give them death and that solves the problems. You you don't worry about what those deaths will do. You don't worry about how that spirals. You don't worry about any kind of external, you don't worry about any kind of external weight on this and any kind of jury or, or discussion or what it doesn't matter what the, the paradigm is that you're using. If somebody deserves death, they die. And cat deals with those two things forever. Like that does not stop in this story. And I think it's really interesting that those were the two paths that she was tempted by her soul to go down, even if there was almost no likelihood of her choosing one or the other in a binary that left her as that kind of person, as she's not who Kat is. Her soul tempts her towards those things. Her soul brings those things up to sharpen her, to refine her, like I mentioned earlier. And it leads to such sharp contrast with the people she meets later on and creates this friction, this conflict that it's I'm curious I know it's difficult to do hypotheticals in the best of situations but would that level of hatred she has for those mindsets have been there if it weren't for the way this name dream manifested I'm not sure just the the parallels there are very
0: cool I hadn't begun to consider and that's a fascinating thing but I think the way you present it is a little simplified in that these are not merely extremes that are brought up that she might refine herself in the face of them, but they are also, to quote the philosopher Bill Watterson in his seminal monograph, Calvin and Hobbes, the inscrutable exhortations of her soul. We have a uh, kill them all and let the dice fall where they may viewpoint. In the very next chapter, Catherine and Black share a moment of fantasizing about doing that to the high seats because it would just be better for his rule than if they left them alive like Militia insists. It's not... Something Catherine is entirely separate from. They're the these are some of the base urges with which she must contend, with which she must. The urge to do a Freudian reading and bring in super ego and id here is <laughs> powerful. But Sigmund Freud was terrible, and instead, let's just say that thinkers have proposed that that which we reject the most is. Sometimes that which we fear most about ourselves. Many thinkers. Lots of cool ones too.
1: I think that's interesting. I think presenting these not as an external idea that she has to grapple with, but rather her soul saying, these are things that you may do. These are parts of you and having cat wrestle with those i think that's good because yeah it's still a struggle with these ideas but it's not fully external it's not cat versus these ideas it's cat versus these ideas and cat against the other part of her that champions these ideas to an extent i don't think she ever really struggles with the good twins one internally after this chapter
0: I can't think of a moment where she struggles with it, but that kind of sentiment is always there, even though she can mock and repress and put down anything to do with it. Throughout the story, obviously, so often, Catherine absolutely would like to just have a simple, clear path that gets things accomplished or finished, because her slog to do anything, the endless horrible mortal peril the thousands of dead the cost to every side is such a terrible thing she has a lamentable journey and there is always something seductive about the simplicity of an impossible virtue
1: the other side of that sort of is present too that we when cat responds to these realizations verbally we get the quote doing nothing is worse than being evil end quote cat isn't she also goes on to talk about compromises it's again you've got good and you've got evil and you've got being good isn't enough and being evil doesn't matter it's the actions that matter and i think we get that's kind of a a thing a running theme for kat i mean she she's very much actions over nature because the idea of like nature actually mattering is something that she isn't big on even when it's explicitly told to her or proven to her that it does you know when the evil queen rules callow um it's inaction that bothers her it's refusing to compromise which i think is kind of calling back to my previous points about comparing the the souls to options with those heroes later getting people killed because you won't compromise is worse than being evil she says letting people letting things happen to people awful Doing something, even if it doesn't work out, even if it's not a good thing to try to fix things, is is virtue for cat is if not virtue maybe, is a step in the right direction. It's the better of the two choices. these I know we're we're falling on, if not opposite sides, different parts of the spectrum on how much this soul dream is meant as a refinement, is meant as a a a way for cat to figure out who she is to to be boiled down to what she is. But this part, this actions, this not putting stock in intrinsic morality or what, whatever ethics, evil versus good, I think is something that she sort of verbalizes here that she maybe hadn't put together entirely and probably hadn't needed to. It's not something that most people need to grapple with, frankly. And here she is being forced to and comes down very hard on... Her side of the fence on this one and in everything from how she prosecutes individual battles where there's the tactical concerns the action trumps anything else to her her words of her house her, her nobility all of it kind of comes back to this idea and i just think this the end of this dream as we've said five times now the way this dream wraps up is also something I think that we just need to keep in the back of our minds going forward. It's it's such an establishing moment for so much of what Kat does. So much of her role, which makes sense. It's it's her name vision.
0: And how does the dream wrap up? In
1: very Cat fashion. She strangles her twin
0: and then wakes up. I've never had the teeth falling out dream, but that's a pretty common one. Mm-hmm. Twice a month or so.
1: Interesting. I'm glad we're separated by... Countless, assuredly, miles of wire. That makes me a little nervous.
0: When she does wake up, when she encounters a servant, he calls her Lady Foundling. Lady Foundling, I repeated somewhat bemused. Fancy that. If I'd known all I needed to become a noble was stab someone in a dream, I'd have done it a while back. Great, clever cat and all, but... Does Kat desire nobility? Have we ever seen... She wants power. She wants the means to change things. But she always seems to have a distaste for any blood superiority. I think
1: anybody who had spent their life in an orphanage wouldn't say no to having their fortunes drastically altered for the better.
0: And this person who spent time in an orphanage doesn't say no to seizing the throne for herself later on.
1: Exactly. Yeah, she does hesitate to weed out the vestiges of noble power until she has ultimate power. And so that's an interesting choice for Kat.
0: Prudence is not her greatest virtue.
1: <laughs> what would you say Kat's greatest but virtue is?
0: Lies and violence. Correct. I think her uh, I think her disdain for blood superiority for her inherited nobility also has echoes in her own origin.
1: Kat brings up her parents and pretty soon after this, she just as a passing thought because she's talking about her body and what traits she inherited from which side of her, her heritage. And I will say it is odd that she says cursed with a slender frame, really getting into some Calo and beauty standards there. But the main thing I wanted to talk about here is I am impressed i think this is the practical guide is a story that is and this may surprise you steeped in tropes that's kind of what it's all about frankly and yet hat is an orphan who doesn't know who her biological parents are and Other than this comment and a few other passing comments here and there, they play zero role in the story. There's never a point where she seeks them out. There's never a point where a mysterious stranger, a woman or a man, shows up to claim parentage or anything like that. There's no surprise reveals. There's no hunting down this mystery. EE does not waste time dangling the mystery of Kat's heritage in front of the reader. And I just really appreciate that because that's a trope that isn't, because that's a trope that often lends itself to quote unquote twists that just are not interesting. And here, Kat's parents, they don't, they don't matter. Her father is the person who helped raise her and helped mold her into who she is. And that's that. That's all she needs. That's, that's great.
0: The mystery of her parentage isn't dangled in front of us because it isn't a mystery. It's an unknown. And those are very different things. A mystery you seek and are baffled and might find, but you know, I don't know what the underside of EE's desk looks like. It's not a mystery. It's an unknown. And that's so wonderful in a story like this, where there's a very powerful narrative of family is what you make it, the found family. Uh, Not just her father, but the woe, that family she builds around her. Even the rivalries she has are, if not familial still, relationships on an intimate level. Uh, Even before any epilogic intercourse with Cordelia, what she has with the other monarch is increasingly, throughout the final war, a bond no one else can share because only they truly understand the experience of leading their nation through that. Everything in the story is about building a place with others for yourself, a place amongst others, building family. And if her biological parentage were dangled, if she were fixated upon it, it would just play into a dissonant in this story and destructive obsession that we see a lot in, I think, our society and a lot of other stories about blood being thicker than water rather than blood of the covenant being thicker than water of the womb. This is the kind of nonsense that sees adoptive families painted as less than, which is of course absurd, but in this story, our darling little hierophant has two loving fathers until they blow themselves up to do a war crime. That's the way family is and should be in all of the details Mm -hmm. and the biggest risk of undermining that is so quickly batted aside and does not return the only thing that matters is yeah clearly catherine's about half dwarite we decided Mm
1: -hmm. okay (laughs) i will have you know because this is an audio medium i spent most of that time nodding and smiling in agreement i i agree i i think you pretty much hit all the salient points this this story is more about this story is about cat's relationships and uh, throughout most of it and her biological parents aren't one of those and that's great it's well done
0: i don't think there's much left in this chapter that we haven't covered that we need to but at the end catherine reconvenes with her assailant slash future father and near greets him with, you stabbed me. He seemed to ponder that for a moment before shrugging only a little bit. And Catherine laments the nature of villains. Even if she is one now, she laments what villains are. And this is a really fun, light scene that is also an eternal mood with her and reveals, I think, a very human face of the Black Knight who up until now, and frankly, so often for the rest of the book is larger than life because he is his myth. Even without his name later on, he is still his myth. He's much greater than a mortal man, but you know, so is Catherine if you don't have her perspective. And it's fun to see that mask slip.
1: The mask slips a bit, yes. We see Amadeus underneath Black Knight. <laughs> But at the same time, we also see that every time he's with the Calamities, just like Cat with the Woe. And being very casual about stabbing someone is also pretty Black Knight, to be fair. That's sort of the mask he gets away with wearing by nature of his position.
0: It was a hard road to get where he is. It's hard to stay perched there, but there are perks.
1: Like stabbing your future apprentice,
0: yeah. And you know what else needs stabbing?
1: What else needs stabbing?
0: episode of the podcast. I think it's outlived
1: its welcome, don't you? I do think so. That is all the time we have for today, folks.
0: It's next week on Podcast Guys talking Erratic Errata. It's we discuss...
1: Learn. struggle, And... Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Playing in Color by Noel Hertz. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine is price of freedom by daddy s music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com/music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at the long price. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, the good man in the graveyard. Next week, Chapter 6, Aspect.
0: next week on podcast guys talking erratic rata as we discuss colonialism historical linguistics and necromancy we'll see you then bye